everybody to this week's Sales Strategy Enabling Podcast. I'm Alistair Wilcock, CSRO, former Gardner Analyst, joined by my famous co-host, Howard Brown, co-founder, CEO of Revenue.io, a pioneer recognized authority in artificial intelligence and revenue science. Howard, how are you doing today? I'm fabulous. I'm excited. Good to see you again. Good to see you. I'm excited as well because it is not often that I get the pleasure of sitting down with not just one, but two successful co-founders and builders of business. You know, both Tal and Howard have built and exited a couple companies each, and it is an amazing wealth of experience. Tal Riesenfeld, the Chief Revenue Officer, co-founder of Sunbit, welcome back for part two of our discussion. Thank you for having me. Tao, we had a really lively conversation around uh, really the sales culture impact last time. But I'm going to shift our gears a little bit to the academic side hitting the real world. Now, you and I had the privilege of connecting previously, and uh, we're both fans of Clayton Christensen, the famous Harvard Business School professor and creator of what was called disruptive innovation. And while I'm a fan and a student and got to chat with him once, you are actually a student of Clayton, knew him personally, and have actually lived and breathed the very disruptive ethos that he brings to bear. And I would love to pick your experiences and brain around what it was like working with Clayton Yo, and and how have you taken some of those principles of disruptive innovation at Sunbit? And what what should we else what should we else consider? Like how, how you know, let's make this a reality that is modern, not just block, blockbuster uh, Netflix story that we all know. Yeah. So I was very impressed by Clay Christensen for the first time I met him. And he had this brilliant theory, and we'll talk about it a bit, about disruptive innovation. And even before, you know, I thought about Sunbit and the company, it really resonated, right? He he talks about um, kind of high level, the theory of how new technologies, you know, innovate and disrupt existing markets and and turn them over. And I I felt um, that that was a brilliant theory. And as we started building Sunbit, you know, sometimes I think, Clay Christensen looked at companies and then brought to life disruptive, like the theory. We started the company and we talked about disruptive innovation as we were building the company, right? So we used that. And, and, and of course, we hit a lot of the, of the points. And one of the things, and you know, Howard said it in, in, the, in the previous call we had, um, when you look at the experience of customers going to the dentist or going to brick and mortar and you know, needing credit, needing a credit card, that the experience is, is horrible. It's, it's a piece of paper that they fill up, I'm holding in my hand, but a piece of application for a credit card and there's brochures and, um, and these big banks have been offering these programs forever, but um, you know, it's stuck in the 1950s and we felt as we were building the company that we can come and disrupt that market with a better product. So you know, as we built, built the company, we were thinking about the different points there and, and, and built it in a manner where we think we're disrupting the traditional credit card industry. And, and I think it's amazing that you're now actually like really applying these principles of, you know, disruption, right? Like that, that reminds me of, uh, you know, in that research, the incumbents dilemma, right? Just because we always did it a certain way, doesn't mean that's how it should continue to be done. You know, and, and Howard, you think of the world of sales now, 
And boy, are we sitting there going, is the way we've always done it, the way we should continue to do it, right? This idea of incumbency dilemma, right? I've, I've made big investments. I've always ran my sales organization a certain way. Do I just sustain it or do I disrupt it? Do I just stay or do I move ahead? You know, artificial intelligence and, and these technologies are, it's not just maybe it's going to disrupt. Sales has been disrupted at this point. Uh, how do you think of Clayton Christensen's studies on disruptive innovation as, as you're building a company? Yeah, I, I think I... I have a pathology and it's a, it, it, I have a problem. My problem is that I'm always looking for a better way to do something. That's just, it's, it's something, it's a, I look around my life and I'm always trying to figure out what I can do better, where it becomes pathology is when it starts looking at everybody else and what they need to be doing better. Um, and I have that same, I sort of, that is my, that's my MO. I'm constantly looking for ways to improve. I, I see what's broken in things. Um, and, and that's challenging because I always want to fix it. Right. And so that, that's why I think we're founders and innovators. We're constantly like, for whatever reason, I'm hyper-focused on what the challenge is and how to come up with a better solution for it. Um, everything can be disrupted. Because there's always an opportunity to improve. There's always an opportunity to use whatever new technologies or innovations to provide better results. Um, change is uncomfortable. Change, is, change management is hard, right? Um, people resist change. But you want to you find where the most successful people are. You want to find where uh, the most value is created. It's where that changes. It's the, the change, that discomfort, that, that what comes out of the discomfort is typically the most valuable and the most exciting. And so uh, for those of us who, I, I don't think of myself as a disruptor necessarily. I, I, I think of myself as a problem solver and builder. And I'm obsessed with doing that. And I like finding people like yourself, Alistair, tall. The people who are really excited about finding better ways to do things. And um, yeah, if you're in sales, if you're in anything and you're like, hey, I'm gonna rest on my laurels, guess what? You're gonna get beaten. You're gonna get left behind because the world is moving so fast. Technology is moving so fast that if you're not looking for ways to innovate, to help people out, to help in Carl's case, his reps sell, build relationships, not do manual stuff, you're gone. So as human beings, we should be constantly thinking about improvement and change. Um, Long-winded answer, but I think, look, disruptors, innovators, problem solvers, people who like change, um, I want more of that. You know, one of the things about the innovator's dilemma, kind of the theory says that these incumbents, they're, they're in trouble. And here's why. Because in every, you know, boardroom, people come and say, hey, I've got this disruptive idea. I've got this innovation I want to bring to the company. And especially these bigger companies that have been doing the same thing, same time, and they have a high margin. Suddenly this employee comes in with a 
new technology, which is lower margin, usually is not perfect yet. And, and that's where the innovator's dilemma comes because you're looking at this, the CEO of the company. Will I now keep improving the product I have and make it better and higher margin? Or will I go and build something that's lower margin and not for my customers? And I think that's where it becomes interesting, where it's, it's that innovation is not clear from the first second that it's going to win. Um, and, and that's how these kind of smaller newer companies have the chance to run under the radar for a long period because they're they're dealing with a small, you know, lower margin problem until they climb up and, and, and compete with a behemoth. So um, I think that's always interesting to look at that dichotomy. I think, Alistair, you mentioned, uh, you mentioned Netflix, right? Uh, Netflix, they, 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 were, they were literally going to sell to Blockbuster, right? Blockbuster didn't want to spend, I don't remember what the number was, 20 million or something like that. It was a small, it was a small number. Because they were like, hey, we already have, we're successful, we have the CDs, we have that whole thing, we don't need a change. And there's company after company after company, it's like, look, we got great retention, we have great recurring revenue, why should we change anything? Well, guess what? You're either going to change or change is going to happen to you. So you can either be proactive about it or you can be a victim to it. The, the blockbuster Netflix story, I know it's dated, but I, I will give our audience a little bit of an insight to bid on this one, which is fascinating. Blockbuster actually itself, everybody always wants to point to, they simply missed the mark on consumers wanting things now in their home and digitally available eventually. Was remember we in CDs at first, to date our DVDs, sorry, at first via mail, and then we went to the digital platform. Blockbuster actually had a proposal internally developed to actually digitize and stream content before Netflix actually existed. Then Netflix came on the scene and they simply sat there and said, look, we, we, we actually see the market going that way. They knew it was headed that way. But because they had what is the incumbency dilemma, they had so much sunk investment into brick and mortar the capital structure of the company did not allow them to get into the digital business. And that capital debt and everything else that they had associated with them was what they couldn't get out from underneath. And they simply couldn't execute against it to get to the streaming service. And now, of course, it's it's the analogy used all the time because it's an easy one for people. But that, that's, the, that's one that didn't work out. On the positive side, you think of IBM. IBM is an amazing organization that people could not believe it when they went and sold off their PC divisions. Remember that back in the day that became Lenovo? And then they started jettisoning their hardware. They're like, how can you get out of hardware? You're IBM, like the company that built the mainframe, the company that brought PCs to the home. And they said, when well, we realize that where things are going is to be a services company and a cloud computing company, and they, they evolved. Right, they saw the trend. They acted on it. One more thing they did, which is interesting, it's very hard for the incumbent to innovate internally. They built different departments. So instead of saying all this business is going to change, they opened another kind of small subsidiary with lower goals, lower margin, less people, probably more innovative. And those are the companies that competed. So, so ultimately, you know, one of the things again, back to the theory, um, says is that if you want to compete with these disruptive innovations. 
you can't shift your whole company. You're making too much money here. You've got too much, you know, uh, inertia there. But in the other way, the way to compete is take, you know, 10 people, put them in a small office, say, hey, you don't need to generate revenue for the next 12 months. And you go and we'll fund you. We'll give you that salary and you compete. And IBM was brilliant at doing that. But that's how they did that. They separated into different departments. And, and I would just say, you know, what is what excites me so much now is, you know, the world we're headed into and we are in with artificial intelligence, generative uh, artificial intelligence, right? Like, there is not an area in the world now that is not rat rapidly up for disruption. And Howard, you know, everything of us internally, we did it actually exactly what Tal said. When we when we saw what's going on, you know, we skunk worked internally, quickly moved, innovative based upon previous R and D that we worked on with AI, application generative, and that fast movement and disruption into a market is exactly the ethos of companies like what you're building, Al's building, we're all building. But like this, this world of generative and AI, again, it is, it's like the, it's, it's, it's the gasoline on the fire for the disruptive innovation models. Sure. And I, but I think a lot of times people are just looking for a technology to solve everything, right? Like, the, the I, why we were able to utilize generative is because we understand in our part of every single part of a salesperson's workflow, right? So where do we apply generative to improve performance across that? We've been using AI for almost eight years in different areas. It's just now generative. So where do we apply generative? What I see a lot of is people like generative is going to solve everything and I'll just create a solution that's generative. Well, Look, my first company I built in 98, everybody built something on the internet that had no business value whatsoever. It took a while to actually figure out how to use the internet technology to disrupt things. Technology in itself is a great igniter of disruption. It's a great part of disruption, but it needs to be deeply embedded in processes, workflow, knowledge, actual business. So um, look, there are definitely a handful of companies that are going to build LLMs and be that generative thing. But the rest of us need to think about how to apply technology to solve real world problems and make life better, more convenient, easier, more productive, more efficient with these technologies. And you know what we were talking about, those, those small innovative teams it's the, the, the concept that Amazon has had with the two pizza teams, right? You don't want to build a team that's bigger than we'll eat two pizzas, right? Put those people in a, in a room, let them develop, let them create something without all of the, the, uh, all the baggage, all of the, the, uh, the, you know, you need to come up with profit now and let them come up with a creative solution to a real problem and then go innovate and, and exercise that outside of that two pizza team. Um, so I guess, look, technology is incredible. It is the lifeblood of so much, but if it's not based in real problem solving, real empowering people, it's probably not going to work as well as you think it's going to work. So I'll, you know, I'll give you, uh, you know, a, a couple more words here on this, you know, on, how to select and apply these models as well. Because again, I look at what you did at Sunbit and 
you did exactly what Howard just said. It wasn't just you decided to do something because it was new and 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 there. You didn't just choose it. There was purpose behind the selection and identification, which is what's Howard saying. You kind of just use technology for the sake of using it. It needs to be used behind a purpose. You're disrupting the buy now, pay later, BNPL market. And you you managed to pick this like on-site brick and mortar component that, that no one else was there. Like, how did you, how did how did that happen? Talk us through. How did you how how can somebody pick like you pick? So I'll, I'll start by the problem. So co-founder and CEO, he tried to apply for one of these credit cards in Costco, and he went through that painful, you know, outdated process, and he, and he got declined at the end of the application. So he felt that problem and he said, okay, oh, this is painful for me and for the retailer. So we knew there's a problem. Those, those, you know, those, those store credits card, those financing and stores, that only works for people that have high FICO score and our CEO was new to credit and, and you know, and got declined. So, so we knew there was a problem, but instead of tackling it head on and going to, you know, to, to stores and offering credit there, we started in a, in a smaller market and in, in, in the dealership space in car repairs. So we went to this smaller niche, but what happens when your car breaks down and it costs $800 and that's a lot of money for a lot of Americans. And we started tackling that problem. And in the beginning, our, pro our product was fit for people that, you know, didn't have perfect credit. It wasn't the most attractive, but over time we, we improved it and got to the point where, you know, any American that goes and has this surprise car repair, you know, they can use Sunbit for that. So we, we kind of climbed and, Today, we're almost at 50% of dealerships in the U.S. So we took over that market, and then we jumped into the dental market, which is much bigger, requires more amounts of money, requires more. And, and we're, we've developed that type of process um, in the dental space, and we're growing very quickly and, and winning that space. And as we were doing these two problem products, then we launched a credit card, where now we're ready to go and kind of compete head-to-head -head with, with the retailers offering a credit card. So to answer your question, it's not that we started there. We started in a niche market that might not be very interesting for a lot of the bigger banks, but we climbed up for, from there. Um, and that's exactly back to this. That's how we were disrupting, right? We're coming from, from smaller market, with smaller with audience that might not have perfect credit. And so now, you know, when when uh, Howard goes to his dentist and he'll see Sunbit that will have an offer that's good for all types of customers. So that, that was our path. It started in solving a small problem where there wasn't a lot of competition, right? Where it's not a very interesting for these big banks to offer four hundred or five hundred dollars in credit. There's you don't make a lot of money. But we climbed up from there into kind of the bigger markets. I, I think it's extraordinary. And and Howard, you know, I I I think you've done I think the same thing of what you've done over the years, right? It started off with the basic premise of how do I actually just improve a behavior? How how do we apply a behavior? when nobody else is ever thinking of behavior in sales, right? Like how do I just improve? If I can elevate one thing, can I do another? And then the whole disruption and idea of applying behavioral science to sales makes sense to people today when they hear it, but nobody was thinking about that back at all. Yeah, I, I, uh, it, it's really good to be with you, Tal. It's, it's exciting, the business you've built and you're building and, um, I think it's an important mission, certainly. Look, 
there are a lot of necessities in life that people can't pay for in the moment and, and the ability to improve their life or get what they need um, so that they can, you know, progress is, is an important mission. It's a valuable mission. Um, and, and look, the, the mom and pop shops, they need some disruption. It sounds like you're providing it. So it, it was great to have you on and it was great to meet you as well. Thank you so much, guys. It's great being here and appreciate this conversation. You bet. And, and gentlemen, look, we always wrap out with some trivia. Um, but Tal, today I'm going to actually just make an audible and do it slightly differently. I think Leighton would be, I hope, very proud of what you two both have been able to accomplish, right? It's not too often, as I said, I get two multi-company entrepreneurs that are building big companies, not just any little things, um, on the line together. And you both espouse the very ethos of what he's they've tried to teach students around the world for years. So in the spirit of giving, what is the single piece of advice you want to give to your, your fellow entrepreneur that's coming out of any business school today? What is one final piece of advice you want to impart onto them? Howard, I'll let you go first. So Tal has, a, has our guests an extra minute. Absolutely. Well, it's a, it's a fairly easy one because I was just talking to a guy earlier this morning that asked me to mentor him and he literally asked me the same question. And I said, if you truly believe in what you're doing, persist. Don't give up. Just keep going because there's a lot of opportunity to give up. But if you believe in it and 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 you have what it takes to to push on and like go, just keep going. Um, it's too easy as entrepreneurs to quit. And, and, and it's, you talk about right before the miracle, right? Don't quit right before that miracle. And that's, uh, I think that's true for businesses as well. So I'll build on what you said and I'll take it a, just a step earlier. The hardest thing about starting a company is starting, right? That's the hardest thing. So a lot of people are walking around, they have these great, great ideas and but um, that's the hardest thing. And once you understand, once you kind of take the leap of faith, you jump in, you kind of, you know, again, if you believe it, you did the research and, you know, every reason to believe. So the hardest thing is, is to start. And then Howard would you said, once you start, you need to persist and, and, and take it to the end. So we'll combine those answers. It's always been a pleasure. Ciro and co-founder of Sumbit. Amazing conversation. Really appreciate you joining us here today. Howard, good to see you as always. For our audience, please remember to like and subscribe. Join us for future episodes. Send your questions in to Howard and I. We'll do our best to get them in the future.